Welcome to Leading Simple with Rusty George. Our goal is to make following Jesus and leading others a bit more simple. Here's your host, Rusty George. Hey, thanks for tuning in to Leading Simple. I'm Rusty George. I'm so glad that you are joining us. Today we have a real treat for you, uh, Kyle Eidelman makes uh, living under a microscope simple. Kyle planted Real Life Church, the church that I am at, back in October of 2000. Two years later, he went on to join the staff of Southeast Christian Church, where he is now the lead pastor there. And the church is one of the largest churches in America. Kyle is not only a gifted communicator, he's also a gifted writer. He's the best-selling author of the book, Not a Fan and his latest book, One at a Time, we will talk about in this episode and a variety of other things. It's such a treat to have Kyle on the program. Uh, Today, we are sponsored by one of our favorite groups called Stadia, stadiachurchplanting.org, and Stadia's mission is to plant churches that intentionally care for children. Why is that? Because as more churches close their doors, fewer people are experiencing the life-changing hope of Jesus. And Stadia prepares leaders to start healthy churches that intentionally reach the next generation of believers, spreading the hope of Jesus farther than ever before. And their motto is, they won't stop until every child has a church. For more information, go to stadiachurchplanting.org. You may be somebody who thinks... I think I'd like to play in a church. Or maybe you think, I'd like to support those who are planning churches, and they desperately need your help. So go to stadiachurchplanting.org to find out more. Well, can't wait for you to hear my conversation with Kyle, so here we go. Kyle Eidelman, thank you for finally being on the podcast. I can't believe uh, we've done this many episodes and not been able uh, to pull this together for you and I. I mean, the the time zone thing really messed us up. So you're yeah. And by pull this together, you mean you get around to inviting me on. Well, I wasn't going to say it that way, but you know, I, uh, I had some issues to deal with. Um, but seriously, I had to laugh because your assistant would always say, how about, how about uh, 9 a.m. for us? And I'd say, well, that's 6 a.m. for us. So I'm not doing that. But uh, <laughs> hey, tell us about yourself for our listeners that don't know who you are. Give us Kyle, you know, in 90 seconds where you're from and what you do. Uh, sure. So I grew up in a town that you know well, Rusty, uh, Joplin, Missouri. Mm. Uh, there are a surprising amount of us that are from Joplin. And um, so that's my hometown, small town in Missouri that um, I, I kind of grew up as a pastor's kid a little bit. My dad was the president of the seminary, the Bible college that, that you and I both went to. Uh, but it had a little bit of that pastor kid feel to it. And, um, and so um, my parents grew up, or I grew up with my parents encouraging ministry, but never kind of putting any pressure on me to go that direction. And, and I graduated from high school, and if you would have asked me what do I not want to do, I would have said, well, I don't want to be a preacher. Like, I don't, I don't want to be a pastor. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that sometimes has a way of... Uh, uh, go in the opposite direction you think it will has a way of testing God a little bit I think and uh, and he he knew what the plan was I I was a freshman in college when I started preaching at this church called Christ Church of Perseverance have you ever heard of that <laughs> what town was that in it was outside Carthage Missouri it's about okay. 15 minutes from 
uh, where we went to school. And <laughs> and it is called Christchurch Perseverance because it required some perseverance. I mean, there were, there were like uh, 30 people that went to this church and they asked me to preach on a uh, Sunday to fill in. Did you ever do that? Kind of oh, yeah. 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 Every weekend. And they said they'd pay me 50 bucks. And I'm like, well, mm. I'll do it for 50 bucks. And yeah. uh, I was like 19 at the time. And, and I got done with that sermon. And they said, hey, do you want to come back next week and do that? I'm like, yeah, I'll come back next week. And yeah. they like, you want to come back next week? And I'm like, yeah, I'll come back next week. And then like, maybe five or six weeks into it, I walked out of the sanctuary and in the lobby uh, on the bulletin board, there was this piece of paper that said, Kyle Eidelman, senior minister. <laughs> and uh, they never asked me about it. Like there was never any discussion. It just kind of got assumed. And I, you know, in some ways that, that calling for me was exactly what I needed. Like God tricked me into it a little bit because I was resistant to it. And he uh, opened that door for me there. And, um, and I ended up loving it, fell in love with caring for and pastoring those people, fell in love with preaching. Uh, my wife and I got married while we were uh, in school. And then um, we moved out to where you are. Mm. So uh, so I came out there in uh, after I graduated from college, 98, 99. And, um, and we had one uh, child at the time and worked with Shepherd of the Hills there and then with uh, – helping to start real life. And then, um, we moved out here, um, at the end of 2002 to Southeast in Louisville, Kentucky, where I'm at now. Hmm. Uh, we have four kids, got two of my kids who are married and I love my son-in-laws, which hmm. is awesome. I did not know that, uh, was, was going to happen. Uh, so I'm really grateful for that. My oldest two girls, uh, are married, and then I have one daughter who's serving God in South Africa, and then my son is 17, and um, he's going to graduate next year. Wow, that is so exciting. Okay, so, man, so much stuff to dig into here. I want to go back to your days at Christ Church of Perseverance. <laughs> uh, was yeah. that the name of the city? Is that how they got that term? Uh, no, I don't know. I suppose, you know, perhaps because perseverance is a biblical word. However, okay. I've never heard it used in the title of a church before. No, it sounds more like a, you know, a Catholic church or something. So, um, any funny stories from uh, those those little churches? I know when I when I taught in, you know, Dexter, Kansas, Anderson, Missouri, yes. um, so oh man, Fort not Fort Collins, Collins, Missouri. I don't know if you ever did that one as well. You just ran into the nicest people and yet the oddest people at times with some of the things that they would talk about or say or expect. Uh, and, and then you find out that they're related in some weird oh, way. Oh, everyone's related, absolutely, <laughs> or had some kind of falling out over a piece of land or a cow. Uh, so <laughs> those were great stories. I found out uh, in my job description for that. I was to preach on the weekends, and then I was to mow the grass. So <laughs> I, I preached, I mowed the grass. And, and, and in some ways, that was great training, right? Like for ministry and keeping the focus on, um, on serving. My, my favorite moment in, <laughs> was on a weekend. We would sing a happy birthday song, kind of a Christian version of happy birthday. We would do it every weekend. And, <laughs> and after we would sing it, we would say, is it anybody's birthday? <laughs> and so I suggested, I'm like, hey, 
what if we asked if it was someone's birthday first? And if it is someone's birthday, then we sing the song. But if it's not, let's not let's not sing the song. Let's ask first. And that was voted down. So yeah. I did. I'm sure that caused a, a lot of consternation there in, amongst the yes. board. Birthday songs and then pledging allegiance to the flags, the whole thing. Yes, yeah, and the Bible. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. That's yeah. really good. I remember a, a, in Dexter that we, I don't know what happened, but somebody wanted to get baptized. So apparently they were new to the family. And uh, which was very exciting. And so they had a baptistry, but we had to clean out all the Christmas decorations that were stored in it <laughs> so we could baptize this woman, which they filled with a garden hose. So it was crisp that day. Yeah, it was. <laughs> with some glitter floating around in it. Of no course. Doubt. Yeah. A little bit of mistletoe. Well, uh, obviously, you felt this call to go out to California. And a lot of our listeners are church planners. Um, tell me about. Why California? I mean, did you just did you just feel like your heart was breaking for planning a church out there? Did somebody talk you into it? Did Dudley have dirt on you? I mean, how how did you get to you know a kid from Joplin, Missouri, who didn't want to be a preacher, decides to plant a church in California? Well, I I didn't know anything about church planting. If I had, I probably would not have had the. Uh, confidence to do it. I, you know, it was one of those situations where, you know, your naivete works in your, you know, works to your benefit. Cause I, I didn't know what I didn't know. And it definitely gave me a false sense of confidence, you know, to, to put some scripture with that though, you know, as Paul says to the Corinthians, you know, God's strength is made perfect in weakness and you know, he chooses the weak things. And, and I, I think that was definitely true. You know, he, he had plenty of opportunities to demonstrate that. And um, I didn't know much about church planning because I don't think at that time there was as much of a movement around it where you could go to a conference or read a book. I'm sure there were church planning books. I, I hadn't been exposed to that. And um, so I, I knew I wanted to preach and, um, and I knew I didn't want to be a student pastor. Like I, I knew I wouldn't do very well with that. And, um, and, and so I thought, well, I'll, I'll plant a church because I, uh, you know, no one, no one was going to hire me to, to be a, a pastor or preacher. I was like 23 or, um, and, and so I had that connection with Dudley and Shepherd of the Hills church. And, um, I knew how, I mean, I understood, um, intuitively how important it would be to be in an area that had a, you know, was a really growing area that needed a church. And, um, and so at that time, you know, the, the Santa Clarita Valley was was growing tremendously and it's continued to. But I I recognized that hey, this this would be a great opportunity to, to plant a church in an area where where there's a need. Hmm. And um, and and God opened up the doors and, and kind of uh, put it together. But I, you know, I didn't I didn't know what I didn't know. Yeah, I think that's uh that that's a wise statement and a good statement and it's a good thing for most church planners because uh, if you if you know what you're getting into it you typically back out I, i've never understood the people that plant multiple churches these are the people that have decided i am a glutton for punishment because it's it's difficult and i i often thank you whether you know it or not for having done this because i thought i might be able to be 
well, I thought I might be interested in planning a church. You and I had lunch. I don't know if you remember this. We were both speaking at preaching and teaching convention in that. Joplin. Oh. And uh, I was working in Kentucky. You were planted this church out in California. We went to some Chinese food place there in Joplin, which is where Chinese food is best. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I said, so tell me about planting a church, because I thought I wanted to do it. And uh, little did I know, you did the heavy lifting, and I got to come in and... and uh, and take it from there. And I, I think, boy, I could not have done that. Well, uh, w- I, I what you did was perfect. I, I would consider us to be co-planters in, in, in <laughs> real life church because, you know, you, you came into it and, uh, you know, I was not, I was not in that role very long. And, and you, you came in when we were really starting to do some of the hard work. Um, you know, we were meeting in a movie theater and we're just getting some of our leaders, lay leaders established just kind of, you know, finding our, our, our uh, footing a little bit. And, mm-hmm. um, and I think God ordained that lunch because that put on my radar that, oh, this is something, um, you know, that you would be interested in. And, hmm. and I felt such tremendous relief. I had prayed so much about, you know, I, I hear church planners sometimes talk about when you start a church, it feels a little bit like a child, you know, it's, uh, and I related to that, especially at the time we had had, uh, we just had our third daughter and it felt like, um, it felt, it felt like the church was, you know, was a child where you're just concerned about it being cared for. And, um, and I just remember literally crying with, uh, relief when God called you to it and, mm. um, and really, you know, and, and I can see much clearly, much more clearly in hindsight that, you know, your strengths for that season were exactly what the church needed. Like it's his, it, you know, it's his child. It's not ours. It's not mine. Mm-hmm. It and, um, and so it's, it's fun in hindsight to see how well he took care of his church. Well, I think that is the, the great, I don't know leveler for all of us when it comes to our expectations. And it's been so great for me to know, hey, this was going before I got here and it'll be going after I'm gone. So I'll do what I can with it. Um, And I think that reminds us how how it really is God's church. So tell me about, I mean, you had just one of the most unique experiences in that you, you came out to a great thriving church at Shepherd of the Hills and Dudley gave you such great permission to teach, to build relationships, and to take whoever you wanted. Uh, Dudley's been on the podcast. We had him on for our our 20th anniversary as a church, and you were kind enough to to share some things on our our, uh, weekend service as well. But I I just remember thinking, not many pastors who plant churches out of their church are as open-handed as Dudley was. How, How did that relationship start, and then how did... How did real life kind of begin out of Shepherd of the Hills? Because I think this is really great for for pastors who are wanting churches to be planted from them, uh, because he did it the right way. Well, you know, the two things about Dudley is that he is incredibly generous, and he is uh, very much an evangelist. You know, Mm -hmm. he is very generous, and he loves to win people to Jesus. And, you know, those two things came together for my benefit, (laughs) you know, because uh, he was— just incredibly generous and, and to use your language of open-handed. Um, I remember, uh, coming there, I would have been like 22, 21, 20, 22. 
when I first got there. And, um, and he, he said, Hey, you know, whatever you need, feel free to shoulder tap whoever you want to No, Nobody is uh, off limits. If you want to try to encourage, you know, our best leaders to come with you, then go for it. And, um, and so, so he was incredibly, um, generous that way. And then, you know, he, he has helped me, uh, over the years be much more, uh, intentional with evangelism and reaching people who, you know, don't know Jesus, who don't have a church uh, home. So those those qualities are, you know, that for for a church that's trying to start a church thirty minutes down the road, you know, that's a that, that's that's huge. And he was humble. He shared. I mean, again, I was a kid, and he he let me get up there to preach at Shepherd on the Hills on a regular basis, and. And tell everybody at the church, hey, here's what I'm doing. Love to have you come with me. Uh, you know, I took all of that for granted at the time. I'm like, well, of mm. course, this is what senior pastors do, yeah. and uh, and I didn't realize how rare that is. But but uh, uh, but yeah, I was very gracious that way. Uh, one of my favorite stories you tell is about you know because Dudley is known for a little bit of theatrics at times, if needed, <laughs> to prove a point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I love the story you tell about how he gave you an example of what he did not want to see happen after the church began. Can you share that story with us? <laughs> yes. I don't know that I've done this publicly, but <laughs> I'd be glad to. So, um, so when I got there, he was on sabbatical and uh, um, I wasn't sure what to do. So I just, I literally sat in my office and played video games because I had no idea where to start or what to do. And I thought, well, when he gets back from his sabbatical, he'll, he'll tell me what I need to do to go plant this church. So, you know, he'll have a task list for me and, um, he'll walk me through it. So he gets back. Uh, and then when he comes back into town, he invites me up to his house. And so I had, I was driving this like, uh, Oh, uh, 1990 something Plymouth breeze that was not in great shape. And so I had a little trouble getting past the guard at the gate, but I made it up. I made it up into, to, uh, to his house and I, I knocked on the door. And um, he opened the door, invited me in, and then he stepped outside of his own house and shut the door. And then he knocked on his own door, and I opened it. I had no idea what was happening. I had no, you know, I, I didn't understand. And um, and then he said, hey, so here's what I don't want to have happen. You know, I don't want um, two weeks before the church is supposed to start, you know, to, for you to come knock on my door and tell me, um, that we're not ready to go. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, I, I just, I drove down out of his neighborhood and thought, oh my goodness, what have I gotten myself into? Um, but he, he could not have been more encouraging and supportive along the way. And then people like um, Dave Ferguson hmm. uh, came alongside of me and helped helped me know, okay, here's what you actually need to do. You know, I remember Dave sending me kind of a task list of things like, okay, for the next nine months, here's what you need to have done, you know, eight months out, seven months out, six months out. And, um, Hmm. uh, and that, that was a huge help. So getting connected to a few people like, like him, uh, as coach, as a coach made a big difference. Yeah. And Dave's been a, a guest on the show as well and great resources out there. We're working with them right now to plant more churches in California. Um, I don't think our listeners understand how 
What a blessing that was from Dudley, because unfortunately there are church pl- there are pastors out there that want to plant churches, but then they follow that pastor around in the lobby and tell people, yeah, don't go with them, or you can't have these people, they're my best givers or my best friends or whatever. But for Dudley to say, take whoever you want um, and, and start this thing is, is what made it happen. And it set the DNA for real life, yeah. uh, which allowed us to do the same thing, to plant mission. Uh, out in Ventura, and we had people go out there and get them started. And you know, here they are, ten years old. They baptized 120 people at Easter, and oh, that's awesome. they're, you know they're launching new locations. So that that little experience you had there at Dudley's front door, which I always thought it'd be funny if you had just locked him out, you know. But you know, <laughs> that's <laughs> that's for another time. But uh, that that really set the DNA for a lot of churches there to make that happen. Well, I, I'd love to to shift gears a little bit here because you mentioned something that I I want to hear about. I don't think I've ever asked you this, but but you grew up under a microscope, living in a fishbowl, basically, because you know in the town of Joplin, which is small and has a uh, a, a Bible college there, Ozark Christian College, which is well known in the community, and a father who was the president of that college, which was well known in the town. He was well known in the town. The name Idleman. Uh, was well-revered in the Christian church and in churches around there. And here you are as, um, you know, Eidelman's son, the son of the president, son of a pastor. Um, how did you live under that microscope? And, and were there moments you resented it? How did it prepare you for living in a fishbowl now as a pastor of one of the country's largest churches at Southeast? Yeah, do you remember when I was in high school, um, I, I'm sure you wouldn't remember, but uh, I remember coming and staying at the college for a weekend um, when you were there. And I, so I grew up oh, no. <laughs> you know, around, you know, the students and around the professors in a way that made me really love the school, uh, you know, that, which, which helped. Like I didn't resent it. I didn't resent that at all. And I see now as a pastor with pastor's kids, you know, that if, if your kids love the church, it goes a long way to, to helping offset some of the unique challenges of uh, being on, in the spotlight, being in the fishbowl. Um, but my parents never never pressured me in that way. Like they, we would have some things, like, I guess I should say. You know, like when we, were, when we were in public, you know, we were expected to have a smile on our face for the most part. But, but I didn't connect that to, you know, who he was or, you know, uh, being being in the fishbowl, uh, and when my dad would pray for me at night, like you know, he he never he would never pray, you know, that um, I would follow in his footsteps. He never he never had expectations or pressure that um, you know that my my life would would only be fulfilled if it was. It was in ministry in some way. So, mm. you know, he, I just never felt that pressure from them. And, um, and I'm grateful for that. I, I think, you know, I, I became used to it. So now I don't really think much of it, you know, when, when I'm in town or, or running around and, and people I don't really know stop and, and talk with me or, you know, I don't, I don't really think much of it. I do think it helps kind of prepare me for that. Um, you know, I think some of the challenges that most pastors' kids have, I had. You know, I, I needed to uh, find my faith and make it my own. I needed to 
you know, uh, work at authenticity and, um, uh, you know, understand brokenness a, a little differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so I, there were some of those things that I think would be true for, for most pastors' kids. Um, but, but my parents just never put a lot of pressure on me to, like, here's what's expected of you. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm grateful for that. Tell me a little bit more about understand brokenness differently. Um, one of the things I love the most about being a pastor is being able to meet somebody in a place of brokenness and vulnerability. And that, that feels like a, like a sacred privilege to me. Like I love, I love the privilege of that space in people's lives. I think one of the reasons that means so much to me is I avoided that, um, for, you know, most of my spiritual journey. Mm-hmm. Like I, I didn't necessarily feel like that was, uh, safe or I knew people, people had expectations or, um, you know, I did, I didn't know how to be that way. And so now when the church is that way, um, I, it's my favorite thing. It's my favorite thing about being, being a pastor. Um, but, but it took me a while and coming to California helped teach me that. You know, I think part of that is the difference between the Midwest and the West Coast. Um, you, you know, being in a church plant allowed me to spend more time with, um, you know, with people who were broken and and had no you know, church. But I remember sitting, uh, you know what, I remember sitting in this new member class. I don't remember what we called it, but uh, we were meeting after church on a weekend and everybody was going around and sharing their story. I remember this guy uh, who... Uh, had taken notes on my sermon and he had his sermon notes out next to him. And I had been teaching from the book of Acts and, and he had written down X. He thought he didn't know what the word Acts, didn't know what it meant. And he had written down X every time I had said, you know, some scripture reference from Acts. He thought I was saying X. And, and then he shared his testimony in that group and um, kind of his story of, of brokenness and, he had recently gotten out of um, an addiction recovery center. And I remember being in that room and watching how after he did that, each person around the table did the same thing. Hmm. And um, I began to notice in that group that, you know, if the first person who went was like, you know, uh, had more of a you know kind of church background and wasn't very vulnerable, there wasn't much brokenness, so nobody else would either. But if that first person would do it, then everybody else would do it, that there's something really contagious about brokenness, of, about vulnerability. And, um, and it taught me as a pastor to, um, to do that intentionally, like to, instead of shying away from that, instead of avoiding it, like I would not only find so much more freedom for my soul, but it would also be an opportunity for other people to discover that as, as well. But it took, that took me a while. I, I certainly, I certainly did not understand that um, until I was was actually serving in the church. You know, we we talk a lot about uh, with our communicators the role of self disclosure, and you know when you're teaching to share a little bit of your own personal pain. And I think you know what you just alluded to was sometimes when you come from a background like you or even myself of growing up in the church. You maybe don't have a lot of that kind of, well, I used to ride with Hell's Angels and I killed a man just to watch him die kind of stories. So 
how do you identify other than just listening? How do you come across with vulnerability in your teaching without, you know, trying to act like, well, I've experienced everything you have, but also relating to people's pain because at the end of the day, we all have pain. So how have you been able to do that even though you don't have a lot of those stories? Hey, let me interrupt this episode for just a second. Would you help plant a church today? You can do that in a very simple way. Go to stadiachurchplanting.org today to find out more. All right, back to the show. How have you been able to do that even though you don't have a lot of those stories? Well, I, th- I think there's two parts to this. One, it's important to not use stories that um, um, that m- make it clear that you don't understand it. So let me give you an example. I preached this past weekend on anger and I should have had a, a more personal, more vulnerable story in, in that sermon. Instead, I told this story about moving into our first neighborhood and the guy's lawn next to me was like immaculate, like no weeds, no dandelions, you know, checkered pattern. And that I, I, my, lo- my wife loved that guy's grass and I just did not like the guy. I never met him, didn't want to know him, didn't care to get to know him because of his grass. And, you know, and I, I was making the point in the sermon that I wasn't really mad at him. I was mad at me that his grass was an indictment on, you know, on my on my lack of responsibility. And um, and and I finished with that sermon this weekend. And I thought, yeah, it was a huge miss. I, you know, my example of mm. anger was, hey, I'm mad at the guy for having a good yard. So that that is a good example of where you, that's. That's not very vulnerable self-disclosure. <laughs> like, but if I can, I can flip that. I a few years ago, I I told a story about losing my temper and and punching a hole in um in our closet door and covering it up with a mirror and you know wanting to forget about it and pretend like it never happened and. I got into, into an argument with my wife about something. I know what it was about, but I don't have permission to say it. Uh, so, and I, I punched a hole in this door and tried to, to cover it up. And, uh, and I, I was preaching a sermon on grace, and I knew God wanted me to, to confess that to the church. And I could not shake it. I didn't want to. Um, I was embarrassed by it. You know, I covered it up because I didn't want, I didn't even want my own kids to know I did that. And, um, and I told my wife, you know, Hey, I think God wants me to share this. I, I was hoping she would say, no, I don't want you to <laughs> like, because now you just say, sorry, God, you know, what do you want me to do? I got to honor my wife in this, but she's like, no, if you feel like that's what God should want you to do, then you should do it. And so I, I got up that, that weekend and I talked about punching a hole in the wall and, and, I walked out, didn't want to, but I walked out into the lobby area afterwards and, um, yeah, I had a, a guy come up to me and, and tell me his story, a hole in the wall story. And I looked up and there's six, eight people in line. Um, uh, all of them wanting to share this, all of them of the same gender, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> of course, but, they, but, but they all, they all had this hole in the wall story. And, um, you know, it was an incredibly powerful moment. And to this day, like it, it's, it's one of the things that people most remember or talk about with me when they talk about a, a sermon or a story, like they remember that moment. And, and, you know, I, I, I know the test of vulnerability is sometimes saying 
something and afterwards thinking, I wish I wouldn't have said that. And, 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 and so I want to be able to, not every week, but on a regular basis, li- listen to a sermon and think, I probably, probably, I wish I wouldn't have said that. Like, it, it felt like a little too much. I, I, I just think very rarely do, do we go too much. That, that's at least true with my generation. Maybe the younger generation needs different guardrails um, because they're more comfortable with it. But, but for me, um, I rarely would step over the line, and I, I probably needed to more often. On that, what do you? What? How do you coach your? your yeah, I, I think that uh, we talk a lot about what's the root behind it all. You know, what? What's the? A lot of times it is pride, or it's anger, or it's worry, or um, you know, approval addiction. Okay, we can all relate to that, even if we haven't done the certain things. But I, I totally agree. I mean, the things that people still talk about around here are, you know, the time I talked about my brother-in-law who I hated and how I dealt with that. Hmm. Um, how I, you know, did the wrong thing at a red light versus the right thing. You know, those, you're right, those moments that we pushed it a little further and uh, we felt uncomfortable, but it, but it was good. I wonder if 10 years from now, people in our line of work will be talking about, well, how do you not share so much? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> because you're now losing credibility with your audience. You know, it seems to be this pendulum that swings back and forth. Um, you know, one of the, the the unique things about your story is that you, you know, you planted a church, but you also took over a church, and you followed not just one legend but two. And for those that don't know the history of Southeast, I mean, Bob Russell is a rock star in the Christian church world in the church world and was there for 40 years and did an incredible job and built this amazing organization, but had his eye on transition 20 years prior and brought in this great young kid named Dave Stone, who grew in to be this great senior pastor to take over from him. And the the transition was seamless, and it was well-documented and studied and, and kind of the worlds we live in. But then they identified you to be the next guy. So here you are going to be the third in line, and the transition went incredibly smooth. What did they do right? Because a lot of churches right now are trying to figure out how to transition, and and it doesn't often go that well. Yeah, I, I think Bob brought Dave into that role and began to share a lot of not just the preaching, but the leadership with him at a time where that was really unusual. And nowadays, you, you see guys who will do that more often because they want to share the load. Like, they don't want to preach every weekend, and they— you know, they're, they're living a healthier, balanced life, right? That, that wasn't why Bob brought Dave in. Like, d- Bob would have been glad to preach every week. Yeah. Like, that, that's not why. He, he brought him in because he recognized that for the health of the church, the good of the church, that it needed to not just be around a personality. Like, yeah. he understood that I think maybe the church was around 4,000 at that time. And he, he understood that um, it would be healthier for the church if there, if it was a shared platform. And so that value made for a much more seamless, and it, it wasn't seamless, but a much more seamless transition, uh, you know, down the road, because that, that was, you know, that, that was the motivation for it initially. It was one, and then, then Bob and Dave both transitioned out at, I, I, I'll get this wrong, but like it's 61 and 59, some, something like that, you know, they, they both, easily could have gone another four five, six, seven years. Um, and, and would have had a lot of pressure to do that. You know, their, their peers and, you know, the leadership in the church for both of those guys would have encouraged them and pushed them 
um, hey, it's too soon. It's too early. But they both recognize, you know, that's the time to do this. And, um, you know, I know that's not true for for everyone, but I do think that was a, a significant reason why the transitions have gone really healthy is they didn't wait until everyone's thinking, when's it going to be? You know, they they transitioned out during a time uh, that was earlier than most people would have expected. Um, one of the things that Dave did for me is he almost immediately, when he became senior pastor, you know, he, he almost immediately started having me preach half the time. Um, and he made me an elder with him, which in our hmm. leadership structure uh, was a pretty significant statement to the rest of the church and to the staff. Um, so there's only two two staff people that would have been elders, you know, just um, him and myself. So, you know, those things were very strategic. He, he, you know, he knew what it was like to be in my seat and in my position. I benefited from that greatly. Um, uh, our friendship was and is very real, which, you know, that goes a long way. Uh, I, I always knew he was, you know, in my corner. I always knew he was, you know, um, cheering me on. And I, I always felt that way towards him. You know, there were a lot of things we would have done different. You know, there are plenty of things where I would have thought, or I would think to myself, yeah, that's not how I would do it. But I always had tremendous respect for him and, um, you know, wanted, wanted him to do really well. So, um, I was, you know, that, that humility from both of them, um, I, I just can't say enough about that. I, that, that is, that was very real and authentic. And, uh, you know, I would have left a long time ago had it not been. You know, what's interesting about watching you over the years is I've always known you could teach. Uh, you're a gifted communicator. You always have been, even back in the old days. I listened to a lot of your messages in the early days of real life because I was, remember the cassette ministry that was set up out there in the lobby? Well, I got all of those tapes and they eventually became CDs. That was a huge, huge uh, uh, step for us to transition to that. And I listened to a lot of those because coming into real life, I wanted to know what did they, what, they, what were they used to? What, what did they listen to? You were a great teacher at 22 and now at you know 42 or however old you are, it's not surprising you continue to get better and you're teaching your videos, all those. This is great. But I've really been impressed with your leadership instincts. Um, and I know you have a team around you and, and they help you. But what has helped your leadership development the most? Was it watching other leaders? Was it uh, having a team around you that sharpens some of the things? Do you find that you yield more than you direct? What is your leadership style and how has it developed over the years? You know, one of my favorite definitions of preaching, I don't know who said this, uh, but it's truth through personality. It's God's truth through who he made you to be. Hmm. I have discovered that's also one of my favorite definitions for leadership and for writing is that it's truth through personality. It, it's um, being who you are, um, God's truth through through who you are, through who he made you. And I'm really thankful that Bob gave me freedom to figure that out when I was in my mid twenties. Um, you know, he would say, I, I felt plenty of pressure, you know, to, uh, do things the way they did it. And, um, but that didn't come from them. And, and Bob would say to me, you know, we, we need you to be you, 
you, you don't, you know, well, the church doesn't need another me. The church doesn't need another Dave. The church needs you to be you. And, um, and I grew into that. Like, I, I don't, I don't think I really understood that for a while. Um, but, but I have discovered that that's where I'm most effective. If I, doesn't mean I don't have parts of me that need to grow, you know, dramatically, but, but I don't need to try to be somebody else. And, um, I was reading, uh, I think I'll get the title right here, Eight Paradoxes of a Leader. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he goes through these leadership qualities. And as he's going through those, I'm like, you know, so encouraging to me because there are things that I might have said 15 years ago were some of my weaknesses. And and now I see them as um, as a strength. Like I, mm-hmm. I thought they were weakness because they were different than some of the leaders I really looked up to. And I thought, man, if I'm going to lead, I need to be, I need to be, uh, you know, more of a, a choleric like Bob and I need to be more sanguine like Dave. And, and I wasn't either of those things. And, um, and trying to be is exhausting. Mm. Um, so, so that, that, um, you know, that confidence and that peace of, I, I want to be, tr- I want to grow. I want to continue to, you know, challenge myself and, and be aware of my weaknesses, but I, but I want to be true to who God made me. So define for us your personality. Uh, well, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't like personality tests. Well, I don't, whatever people say, what Enneagram number are you? And I'm like, whatever Enneagram doesn't like Enneagram, like whatever, <laughs> the, whatever the personality test is, it doesn't, or, that'd be an eight personality test. Well, you, you strike me as somebody who, uh, even though you stand on a stage and talk, you are an introvert. Uh, you seem to be rather thoughtful uh, rather than speak first and figure it out later. You don't seem to process verbally. It's more internal. Um, am I getting any of this right? Yeah, yeah, you're good. But, you know, I, I, so the introvert-extrovert scale, you know, I compare myself to introverts that are hyper-introverts. Uh, I won't mention any names, but, but other people that you and I know and love. And I'm like, well, I'm not that, you know, I, I don't think. And then I compare myself to people who are hyper extroverts and uh, I'm like, well, I'm not that. Mm. I definitely, you know, enjoy some, um, some time to myself. So I don't, I don't know that, uh, that I've found kind of the, oh, the camp that I feel most comfortable in. I love, well, here's an example of this as a pastor. I love meeting with people on the weekends. I just don't like to stand around and, and shake hands and, and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, small talk. So I'll meet with people before and after services. I'll meet with anybody in the church, um, you know, and so before church and, and, and after I'll sit down talk to two or three people, 15, 20 minutes at a time, um, be able to listen to them and pray for them. And, and I really love that. Like, that that has been incredibly life giving for me. I don't, you know, I don't necessarily want to just go sit in a room somewhere by myself. Hmm. Um, you know, I I really enjoy s- sitting down and being able to have, um, a, 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 you know, that kind of conversation with um, with someone in the church. But yeah, how would you describe yourself? 
That's a hard question. You know, well, I, I, I kind of came prepared for this because I've been trying to figure that out for the last few years. Oh, okay. And I think the better part of my life was, you know, when you're in your 20s, you're just replicating what your Bible college professors did. Yeah. You know, and then in your 30s, you're, you're trying to replicate whoever the hottest preachers are right now. Good. And I, I think now that I'm in, you know, my... Well, I'm 50. I'm not in my 50s. I'm 50. <laughs> uh, at the time this airs, I'll be 51. But I, I think I, I'm kind of more comfortable in my skin. And I, uh, the term I like to use is whimsical. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's easy for me to make a joke out of most anything. And I used to think that was a, a weakness. But now I think, you know, that's just, that's just who I am. And I find that the, the way I relate to a lot of people when I teach on the weekend is when I just make a you know, an offhanded comment about an 80s song or a movie or, a, you know, what might be going on in this text. And people lean in. It's, it's a level of authenticity that, that I, I have. So I've, like you said, I've tried to embrace that rather than, you know, when I first got here, I'm trying to be Kyle. And then I was trying to be, you know, whoever the hottest preacher was down the street. And now just to, you know, okay, I'm, no, I'm not the most, the deepest, most thoughtful person you've ever met but I am whimsical and I'll try to make it simple for you. And that's my personality. So that's my best shot at it. Yeah. Well, and that's, it's freeing to, to discover that I, in the middle of, uh, <laughs> in the middle of COVID, I had a, a friend of mine say, Hey, I, I think you should go talk to this. I don't, I may have already told you this. I think you should go talk to this uh, life coach, <laughs> uh, executive coach. That's what he called him, an executive coach. And, uh, and I'm like, yeah, you know what? I, I could use an executive coach. Like there was something about that that felt, uh, you know, I, I don't uh, Felt appropriate. Felt, yeah, I was like. <laughs> I, I should do that. Uh, it appealed to my ego in some way, I think. And, and so, I, um, so I, I line up this guy to uh as an executive coach and i get maybe 45 minutes into the first session with him and i'm like oh he's a therapist like <laughs> he's clearly like he calls himself an executive coach so people like me will go meet with him and uh and so i i started you know meeting with him on a, on a weekly basis and i found it to be incredibly helpful to uh you know, better understanding some of these things, better understanding who God made me and, um, and how I need to honor that so that I can do what he's called me to do, um, for the long haul and, um, and not, not, uh, not wear myself out too quickly. Oh, it's a great word. I always love it when our guests talk about their therapist or <laughs> executive <laughs> coach. Yes. Uh, because we all need it. We need to talk to somebody. Okay, uh, this this has been awesome. But I, I, I really want to talk to you about your writing. Because at some point, early on, you decided, I need to write. What, what, what led you to writing? Because that's not something that's easy to do. Yeah, I didn't know that I wanted to do that. I'd always manuscripted my sermons for the most part. Typically, if I preach, I'll write out like uh, 3,500 words, and then I'll preach around five thousand uh that's typically my spoken word count so I, I the majority of my sermon i would i would write out so i enjoyed the the writing process um and, and yet i didn't i didn't have much of a thought around writing a book not because i i wouldn't have enjoyed doing it but just because i felt like there was a lot of books out there <laughs> you know i right. didn't feel like i had a lot to add to the conversation um one of the reasons i, I love the 
you know, God's truth through personality as a writer is because I've learned that God uses different voices differently, you know, in the same way he uses churches and communicators. But, uh, but I had finished preaching a series, I don't know how long ago this was, maybe 11 or 12 years ago, um, at church called Not a Fan. And, um, and I had a guy in our church who at the time was like a, a, a some kind of vice president of marketing, I'll get the title wrong, at Zondervan. Um, a publishing company, and and he he said um, when I was done with that series, he said, "Hey, if you turn that into a book, I I think I can get it published for you." And it kind of took my excuses off the table to do something uh-huh. like that because I you know I thought about it, but just you know um, I did not have the I just couldn't imagine writing it and then trying to send it out and I you know doing all of that. So he took he took kind of took that off the table for me, Don Gates. Um, who you know, and um, and and so I wrote not a fan, and um, and, and God's timing was so good because at that time I was thinking about going and doing something different. Um, I couldn't see myself staying in the role I was in for the next ten or twelve years, um, and then God opened up that door uh, for writing and for some production work, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I loved doing that for for that that season. I still do some of that, but. Um, but he opened up that door. But if, if, if it, if sort of a Christ church of perseverance scenario, you know, author, uh, I, God kind of took away my excuses and, uh, and, and I discovered that I really love it. Okay. So not a fan is your most successful book, but I've discovered books are like kids. Some, you know, you just have a different connection with what's, what's your favorite book that you've written? I think it's important for people to recognize that the publishing world is a crapshoot. Like, yes, you don't have any, I like some of the best books out there you'll never know about because they don't ever really get off the ground. And some of the books that aren't really very good at all just take off and you're like, wait, what? Yeah. And, uh, and, and so I, you know, as an author, I've, I've, uh, I've learned to kind of accept, you know, accept the reality of that and trust that, you know, you do this as a stewardship, as an offering to God, and He uses it how, how, hmm. however He wants. Uh, my favorite book that I've written was probably um, a book called "The End of Me," which may have hmm. done worse than any other book. Um, I don't really know the exact numbers, but I bet it did. I bet that's a true statement. And but it was probably my favorite one that I wrote. That's really interesting. I I, I know that my favorite one was one that no one read, but my mother, uh, <laughs> but I felt like, you know, that's me. Um, and, and a great point about that because, and I, th- I think it was Don Gates that told me this publishers look at it as out of 10 books that they publish from different authors, five will be dreadful, you know, four will be okay. And one will be so successful. It will pay for all the rest of them. Yeah. Um, I've always been on the five that are dreadful, apparently. So, uh, but well, I, you know, it's thanks for paying it's, for it with not a fan. <laughs> it, it's frustrating. I, I've maybe written, I don't know, eight or nine books. And it's frustrating to feel like you get better at it. Yeah. <laughs> but, but the numbers don't necessarily reflect that. Right. So you, I blame the reader. <laughs> exactly. If you guys could read what I'm writing now, it's so much better than the early days. <laughs> Okay, well, your latest book is called One at a Time. Uh, where'd this idea come from? Uh, you know, I when I came from real life to Southeast, um, 
it, it's really came from that season. I, I was really overwhelmed when I first came to this church uh, by how many people there were. And it was very easy for me to just stay up in my office and go to meetings. And I found about six months into it, I think I even talked to you around this time, about six months into it, I was pretty disillusioned with all of it. And, um, you know, thought maybe I'd made a mistake and wasn't sure what God wanted me to do. And, um, and, and I was reading the, the narrative from Luke eight of, uh, the woman with the issue of blood who reaches out and touches, uh, the hymn of Jesus. And, um, she tries to disappear into the crowd. Mm-hmm. And, and then there's this really beautiful verse there as Jesus is looking for her, where it says, seeing that she could not go unnoticed. Mm-hmm. And, um, and when I read that, it, it, it something clicked for me about ministry that, you know, that my calling as a pastor was to make sure that that people couldn't go unnoticed, that the, the one person who's trying to kind of hide in the crowd gets seen. And, and I don't feel like I'm really good at that, by the way. Like, I don't feel like that comes naturally. I don't, you know, from a personality standpoint, that's not you if you spend time with me, you don't think, Oh, that's, he's that guy. Like uh, it really takes uh, some work, but I love it. And I, I, uh, I began to, to work at looking at ministry and calling through that, that lens, that one at a time lens and become a collector of stories. And then I, I, I started to look through, you know, the gospels and just recognize how many narratives are one at a time narratives. Like that's, that's how Jesus did ministry. Mm. And then I saw within our church, just the opportunity to lead in that way, you know, where the more campuses we had and the more people who attended, the more that value of Jesus needed to be uh, emphasized. And, um, and so I, I began to uh, more intentionally to lead as a pastor with that, with that value. Um, and we put together this app called, um, one at a time, and and I have people from our church share stories, kind of their one at a time stories on there, and and it is incredibly inspiring because you just see the power where thousands of people um, are living out their faith one person at a time, and it's not necessarily super dramatic, uh, but that's kind of what I love about it. You know, mm-hmm. they're learning, and I'm learning to see those everyday opportunities. Um, as gospel opportunities. And, uh, and so, you know, recognizing that like as a church, if we can unleash that within, within our church, like our opportunity for influence and impact is profound. I also would say that as a pastor, I know what it is to get caught up in like the, the numbers of things like, um, you know, how many copies of a book's book is sold or how many people attend or how many baptisms we had. And, um, how many followers on social media. And, and it's not to say that, the, that some of those numbers aren't important. I mean, they are, but that's not how you want to measure your influence. Like we use the word influencer that way. It's like, well, how many, how many people do you have, you know, that are following you or commenting or sharing your posts or whatever it is. And, and I, I, I just reject that. Like I, I, I really tried hard to, not um, just to not have any space for that. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't, I couldn't tell you, like I, I couldn't tell you how many people we have. At, and it, somebody is paying attention to that. I, I just know for me, uh, I don't, 
I just don't need to go there. Like it's just, that would not be the path uh, that would be healthy for me as a pastor, as a leader. And so, um, and, 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 and so it really came out of that. Um, hmm. Just watching, watching how that, um, you know, when my life reflects that, when I feel like I can tell one at a time gospel stories, then I'm much healthier ministry when I, in ministry, when I feel like I can't tell those stories, um, I don't have much to say and I don't have much energy to say it. That's really well said. I think we've all struggled with the numbers. They become a God to us. They become an idol. Uh, when they're good, we think, oh, that's fantastic. When they're bad, we're, <laughs> we're at our wits end. I remember a few years ago, I decided I need to fast from the numbers, mm-hmm. and I fasted for a few years. Okay. And then another pastor, a mutual friend of ours, said to me, you got to look at him sometime, because <laughs> <laughs> uh, you kind of need to know how to steer the ship. And so I found quarterly is a pretty good time just to take a look at things. That's good. Because it, eventually you just start, you know, if you have a bad weekend, then you think, I'll fix it next weekend. Well, yeah. the people that weren't there will be here and vice versa. So... Hey, this has been so rich, and it's just been fun to talk to you. Uh, you're going to be uh, out our way this summer, and uh, I cannot wait for that experience to have you back at Real Life, first time in the building, so that'll be fun. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe that weekend we'll just go back to the theater, so you can just have <laughs> yeah. that experience again. That's not um, not do that. For all of our uh, listeners who think, I- I'd like to get a copy of, uh, you know, one at a time, but... More importantly, I'd like to share that with others. You have great resources out there uh, for churches to utilize this. How can they find all this, and what's the best next step for them? Uh, you probably just go into my website, kyleidelman.com. There's a bunch of resources on there, and uh, yeah, that'd probably be the best place to go. Okay. Well, Kyle, thank you so much for what you did at Real Life. Thank you for leaving Real Life because it allowed me to get here. Um, but thank you for what you're doing for the kingdom because it's, uh, it is really massive and it's really great. And it's really personal through one at a time. So I appreciate it, buddy. Thanks, brother. Great to talk to you. Well, thanks so much for listening. I think that you got a lot out of that, just as I did. I so appreciate Kyle being on the program. If you would, would you leave a review and we will read it. In fact, we are collecting all the reviews that are being listed over the course of the summer. And we're going to draw out of that list of reviews a winner and give an incredible prize to. So stay tuned for that. Let me read one right now. This comes from BL Schools. Brittany writes, you should subscribe. I welcome this podcast into my latest episode folder. I always look forward to listening. It's helped me as a leader, and I have shared lots of episodes with friends in vocational ministry and some who are not. So thank you, Brittany. Really appreciate that. And you, too, can be entered into this contest by leaving a review wherever you get your podcast. So thanks so much for listening. Next week, we'll be back with brand new content. And my old buddy Brad Williams is back and we have a discussion about simple leadership lessons for the summer. So can't wait to talk to you then. Take a moment and subscribe to the podcast so you'll get it delivered every week. And subscribe to the Rusty George YouTube channel for more devotionals, messages, and fun videos. Thank you for listening to Leading Simple.